This morning, I'm going to begin with a survey. Survey is easy and it's simple and it contains only one question. The question is, I'm going to list several different places and you have to pick the one that you would least like to go to. Okay, seven different places and you need to choose the one that you would be most fearful to be present at. Here we go. Choose wisely. Number one, a dark alley in the middle of a night in a dangerous city. Okay, any takers? Number two, again, there's six, there's six more options here, so, so hedge your bets here. Number two, for those of you who are afraid of heights, stand 10 minutes on a cliff or on the ledge of a tall building. Any takers? Number three, those who are claustrophobic spend one full night in a tiny box. In other words, you are buried alive for an entire night. Those of you who saw Jaws in the 70s, number four, swim in shark-infested waters. And just to make it interesting, you have a cut on your leg. <laughs> number five, was that a take? Okay, all right. Uh, number five, spend one full night in an abandoned house that for years was believed to have been haunted. One full night in a house that for years was believed. Now, obviously, we don't believe in ghosts, but that's still creepy, okay? Number six, spend one whole day, 24 hours in a hat, that is, hat in a house that is infested either by rats or by spiders. Your choice. And number seven, here's the gotcha. Go to John 12, 37 through 50, and discover the deepest reason the Bible provides for why people rejected Jesus Christ. Those are your options. Now I get it, I got you, I fooled you, I tricked you, that was unfair, but, and I also realized that number seven doesn't sound scary at first. But the truth of the matter is, Although it's not scary in the same way that those other things are scary, it very much is a frightening reality. Although it holds no danger, it brings you no harm, it poses no threat to you except for puny and weak views of God that reject his sovereignty. You see, the scripture that you're about to see this morning is scary very simply because like the one we saw last week in Isaiah, it shatters human logic. It crushes platitudes and cheesy cliches. The passage you're about to see will not let you be vague or ambiguous in your theology. Passages like the one you're about to see, just like Isaiah chapter 6, yank the limbs of our doctrine in different directions until all of our superficial man-centered views about God become ripped and torn apart. Let me put it to you like this. People say all the time, don't they? They say all the time how they want to go deeper in their study of the Bible. I just want to go deep in the study of the scriptures. And while I'm not persuaded that people understand all that that means, let me just let you know this morning that it, this morning will be about as deep as you can possibly go. It doesn't really go any deeper than this. What John is about to show you this morning is about as deep into God as you can possibly go, and it all has to do with this thing called the sovereignty of God. Now, you know that we're in the book of Isaiah, but this morning we are examining John chapter 12's quotation of the book of Isaiah, and specifically John's quotation of Isaiah chapter 6, in which God pronounces a blinding curse upon his own people so that they couldn't and wouldn't believe. John quotes that text. And we're going to examine John's quotation of that text, because you remember last week we saw Isaiah's call and commission. His brutal mission to preach to a people who are on the downward slope, sliding to destruction. God was very clear with Isaiah. He, he warned him, no one is going to repent. No one is going to believe. No one is going to yield to the word of God. No one. And again, the reason for that was precisely, precisely because God, as a judgment for their unbelief, would produce in them the very rejection that would lead to their destruction. Through Isaiah's preaching, God would dull their hearts and disable their ears and blind their eyes and thus prevent in them the very repentance that would otherwise lead to their salvation. 
That was Isaiah chapter 6. The question this morning, the question that we need to wrestle with is, what did the New Testament do with that text? What did the Gospels do with that text? How did they understand the heart-hardening, eye-blinding curse of God placed upon the people in Isaiah chapter 6? Did they ignore it? Were they afraid of it? Did they try to explain it away? Or worse, did they try to correct what God said he was going to do to his own people? Or, or did the gospel writers use that very text as the deepest explanation for why the Jews rejected and even murdered their own Messiah? That's exactly what they did. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all quote Isaiah chapter 6. And rather than explain it away and try to make it mean something else, they used it as the explanation for why the Jews did not believe. And so this morning, just to warn you, we are going to boldly go where few people have gone before, namely into John's ultimate reason why Christ was scorned by the ones he came to save. When it should have been obvious he was their Messiah and King, and you understand the reason he gives is not the free will of man, but the divine purposes of God. This morning, just to warn you, you will not walk away with five keys to better friendships. This morning, you're not going to get three strategies to more effective living or, or eight ways to manage your anxiety. You're not going to get any of that this morning. But what you will get, what you will get is a God gracious and invincible, powerful and compassionate, and a God who governs everything that comes to pass, and that is the comfort we need for everything in our lives. So here we go. Here we go. John's quotation of Isaiah chapter 6. Here's where we're headed this morning. I want you to see from our text two certainties. Two certainties that you must know to make sense out of God, His plan, and the role of Christ in it all. That's where we're headed. Two certainties that you need to know to make sense out of God and his plan and the role of Christ in it all. And the first certainty is this. Number one, you must know why the rejection of Christ was not a failure. You must know why the rejection of Christ was not a failure. Before I tell you why his being rejected was not a failure, let me remind you of two things here. Number one, John chapter 12 records for us the last public appearance and sermon by Christ. It's the last one. Here he is preaching in the temple, and as soon as he is done, he disappears alone with his disciples for the greatest theological huddle in history in chapters 13 through 17, and the next time he shows his face publicly, he is crucified. Number two, speaking of his crucifixion, with this point is less than a week away, probably three days away, the crucifixion is the very secret weapon of the plan of salvation itself. I mean, we are that close to the meaning of his mission. And you would think, you would just think that after two years, 11 months, 300 plus days of indisputable evidence to be God in human flesh that the people would finally embrace him as the long-awaited Messiah for whom they had been waiting for centuries. You would think that would be the case. And that is what makes verses like verse 37 such a crushing disappointment. Look at the text. But although he, that is Christ, had done so many signs before them, they were not believing. In him. Now you need to remember, you need, you need to understand something. In the verses just before this verse here, Christ has been wrangling with a crowd of skeptics, and trolls, and hecklers who pretty much argued with every single thing that he had to say. They weren't buying what he was selling because what he was selling was himself as their Messiah. The harder Jesus pushed, the more they resisted, and the more he tried to convince them, the louder they growled and they hissed until finally, at the end of the chapter, he walks out of a room filled with the very people who in three days would be calling for his execution. And I'm sure you've had, I'm sure you've had in your conversation with non-Christians something along the lines, some claim along the lines of, well, 
I would believe in Christ if he all of a sudden appeared and did a miracle for me. I would believe in him if he all of a sudden appeared and did something supernatural to verify his claims. To which I want to reply, I'm not so sure that's true. In fact, I don't think that's true at all because, because, look again at verse 37, although he had done so many signs before them, they did not believe. Notice what John says. He had done so many signs before them. So many, not a few, not occasionally, so many signs. So many, in fact, that John, at the end of his gospel, says that if he were to recount all the miracles that Christ had done, that the world could not hold the books that were to be written. So many signs. And notice, notice very carefully the language he uses. So many signs before them. As in, right in front of their face. You understand, he, he, this wasn't some half-baked illusionist doing cheesy party tricks. No, he did things that had no human or scientific explanation. He changed the molecular structure of water into wine. He multiplied enough bread and fish to feed a football stadium. He changed the sea into a sidewalk and walked on the water. He healed diseases from another zip code. He stopped hurricane winds with his mind powers. He made demons beg for his mercy. And he raised poor, rotting corpses out of their tombs. And yet John tells us they were not believing in him. Which tells us, which tells us they didn't need new evidence to prove what was true. They needed new hearts to believe what they already knew to be true. And I would argue, I would argue the same goes for anyone in this room who might also be skeptical of the claims of Christ. Now, if the issue for you is that you really want to research, you really want to think and ponder and, and study before you make a decision of this magnitude. I understand that. I get that. You should totally do that. I am in support of that decision. And yet, and yet, if you think you need more evidence than is already there in the four historically verified eyewitness testimonies of the gospel, I say to you, no evidence will persuade you. Because what you need is not more proof to persuade you but divine power to open your eyes to the proof that's already there. Which is what they need. But you see the issue that John is raising for us. You see the tension that's being raised here. Christ said that he came to save the lost sheep of Israel. Right? And yet Israel as a whole has rejected him. Some believed. Most rejected he was scorned by the ones he came to save. He was denied by the ones he came to deliver. He was rejected by the very ones that he came to rescue. I mean, you think about it, if you have an objective and you don't meet that objective, I think we call that a failure. Do we not? The question is, was the mission of Christ a failure? Was his being rejected indicative of the fact that the plan of salvation maybe wasn't a great plan after all? That Christ and the Father should have thought things through a little differently. That they should have crafted a better, more alternative plan that did not result in him being rejected and hated by the very people that he came to save. To which I respond, brace yourselves. Brace yourselves in answer to that question. Because John is about to provide the deepest theological explanation that explains the rejection of Christ and the answer lies not in the free will of man, but in the divine sovereignty of God. Look at verses 37 and 38 together. Although he had done so many signs before them, they were not Believing in him. Why? In order that the word of Isaiah the prophet should be fulfilled. And there it is. That seems small, but that is off the chart significant. You know why? Because in that phrase, in order that, 
or so that the word of Isaiah would be fulfilled. That word so that, it means purpose. It means design. It means intentionality. It has to mean that God was behind the unbelief of Israel in some way to bring about the outcome that he himself determined. The question is, what was the outcome? What exactly is the outcome that God determined? And the answer is to fulfill ancient prophecy. Do you see that? Their unbelief was the fulfillment of prophecy. God planned that. Can you see that in the text? The people's unbelief and blindness fulfill what Isaiah had already said. This was going to happen 700 years before this, which means even their unbelief in some mystery was part of the sovereign purposes of God. And if that's true... If that's true, then that means that Christ being rejected and hated and killed by the very people he came to save was not the failure of God's plan, but the fulfillment of God's plan. Now, you have questions. Answers are coming. But notice the exact prophecy to which Isaiah is referring, looking at verse 38. He's quoting Isaiah here. He says, this was to fulfill what Isaiah had said. Lord, who believed literally our message? To whom was the arm of the Lord revealed? The question is, what chapter in Isaiah is John quoting from? To to what is he referring? And you know exactly what he's referring to, don't you? He is quoting Isaiah chapter 53. And why that matters is because this verse is a quote about the future unbelief of Israel and their widespread rejection of the Messiah. That's what it is. And his question is, Lord, who has believed our message? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Do you see what he's doing? He is pre-visioning and even pre-lamenting the future unbelief of his people in their Messiah. Who has believed? And the answer is very few. Very few. Aside from a few blue-collar nobodies from the sticks of Galilee, some icky Samaritans, and a small crowd of devoted women, very, very few people actually believed. But you know, the thing about Isaiah 53, that it goes on to describe with unbelievable precision and clarity, the Messiah being hated and rejected and mutilated, mutilated and murdered seven centuries before he ever even came to earth. That's the prophecy. So do you see what John is doing here? Do you see what he is weaving before our eyes? To fulfill the prophecy of Isaiah 53 and get the Son of God slaughtered like a lamb for sinners, God had to orchestrate everything that would lead to the slaughtering of the Son of God. In other words, to get the Messiah murdered, there had to be murderers. And if there are murderers, that means there has to be people who hate him enough to the degree that they're willing to murder him. And that is exactly what John said God did. Does that sound crazy to you? It's not crazy. It's not crazy. Because the Apostle Peter said this very thing in Acts chapter 2. Listen carefully. He says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested by God to you with powers and wonders and signs which God did through him in your midst, even as you know, here it is, he was delivered over by the predestined plan and foreknowledge of God. Acts 4.28 goes on to say that the murderers of Christ did whatever God's will and God's hand predestined to occur. That is why the rejection of Christ was not the failure of God's plan, but the fulfillment of God's plan because it had all been predestined. Not only the murder but even in the hatred and unbelief that would lead to the murder. It was all part of the plan. And I'm not saying that's simple. I'm not saying that's easy to understand. 
I'm not saying that you're stupid if you're confused or you have questions. I'm just saying this is what the text says. And that it's good news. How is it good news? How is it good news you wonder that God predestined and pre-planned the rejection and murder of his own son because, number one, this tells us, listen carefully, that the father is lovingly intentional and gracious. It's exactly what this reveals. You see, I know that some of you have gone through really painful, hard, challenging, difficult maybe even traumatizing things in your lives. And sometimes it can feel so arbitrary. It can seem so haphazard. It can seem so random. It can seem so meaningless. Why is this happening to me at this particular time? Why? But don't you see? The Father was behind the greatest evil and injustice in history, namely the torture and death of his own son. But the punchline is it was all lovingly, intentionally designed to bring about the most loving outcome in history. Namely, salvation for the world. Don't you see, if the Father was so intentional with his Son to bring about your salvation, and he was, then we have the assurance that he is just as intentional with all the pain in our lives. It might be painful now, but the end result will be more joy than if there had been no pain. Second reason why this is good news. God ordaining the hatred and murder of his own son is good news because it tells us beyond a shadow of a doubt that the father is in absolute control over everything, over everything. I mean, the Bible is clear. God did not just passively allow the murder of his son to run its course. And then just before the buzzer flips some sort of switch to make his death have meaning, God did not base the plan of salvation on a roll of the dice. No, every detail had been ordained. And with our lives, you understand with our lives, the Bible is just as clear. God is just as deliberate, just as intentional. In fact, in Christ, every moment of our lives is on order from the throne. We must rejoice in the sovereignty of God because that is his way to preserve himself as our highest treasure forever. But John's not done. He, he has one more piece of evidence here to prove that Christ being rejected was not the failure of God's plan. Look at verses 39 and 40. He says, for this reason, notice his language, for this reason, they were not able to believe why? Because, again, Isaiah said, he's giving the reason why they were not able to believe. Why? Because Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and he hardened their heart. Why? In order that they would not see with their eyes and understand with their heart and return and I heal them. My, oh my, what? What have we gotten ourselves into here? Isaiah chapter 6 is what we've gotten ourselves into because that's exactly what John just quoted. And do, I mean, do you see what John is saying? Looking at verse 39. For this reason, they were not able to believe. They couldn't believe. They couldn't. Why couldn't they believe? What's, what reason does it give? The, the reason John just gave in verse 38, which was that their unbelief had already been prophesied. Their unbelief had already been planned. Their unbelief had already been predestined. Which means in some unspeakable mystery that simply defies human logic, God didn't let them believe. And maybe you think, Jared, you're making that up. There's no way that's true. And I wouldn't have believed it either, except that that's precisely what the text says. Look again at verse 39 and 40. Hang on every word here. Follow the logic of the text. 
He says, for this reason, they were not able to believe. Why? Because Isaiah made a prophecy 700 years before this. And what was the prophecy? What exactly did Isaiah predict that God would do to his own people? What does the text say? He, that is God, has blinded their eyes. And he hardened their heart so that they would not see with their eyes and understand with their heart and return and I heal them. And that is devastating. Did you see the logic in the text? You don't have to say anything about it. You just read the text and the point is clear. Why were the people not able to believe in their Messiah? Why? Because According to Isaiah chapter 6, God blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts so that they couldn't and wouldn't believe. Did you see what John does? He links the blindness of the people in his own day to the curse of God given to his people in Isaiah chapter 6. That is what the text says. And I know you have questions and answers are coming. But there's no denying what John says God's role was in the unbelief of Israel. But notice very carefully the wording of the text. Who blinded their eyes? Who hardened their hearts? Who is the subject of those two verbs? God is the subject. God is the subject. And here's another one. Does the text say, does the text say that the people blinded their own eyes or hardened their own hearts? Does the text say that he allowed them to blind and harden themselves? Or does the text say that he actively did so? Isaiah says in some mystery, unfathomable mystery, that God did that. Which means that God deliberately produced in them the very unbelief that would lead them to murder their own Messiah. You have questions. And answers are coming. But this, this is the very same thing that Paul said. Do you remember 1 Corinthians chapter 2? And Paul's talking about this very same thing. Listen very carefully to what he says. He says, but we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery which has been hidden, which God predestined before the ages for our glory. And this wisdom, he says, none of the rulers understood it, For if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Do you see? Do you hear what Paul just said? God hid from the rulers who crucified Christ the wisdom of his plan. And had he not done that, they would have not have crucified the Lord. And we would not be saved. You have questions. Not the least of which is, why would God do this? What would be the point in blinding the eyes and hardening the hearts to the very one who came to save them? What is the point of that? Look very carefully at verse 40. Look look at the intended design of that. He has blinded their eyes. He has hardened their heart. Why? Why would God do this? In order that they would not see with their eyes, nor understand with the heart, nor return. And I heal them, he says. And I just want you to know that you are right now, you are standing on the highest theological ledge of the Bible. It's right here. It's right here. It doesn't get any higher than this. You are standing in the stratosphere of the imponderable sovereignty of God. I mean, do you see now why I say that John 12 is a scary place to go? Isaiah just said that the reason why God blinded their eyes and hardened their heart was so that they would not repent and believe and be saved. And they didn't. And they killed him. He was scorned and slaughtered by the ones he came to save, and yet their unbelief was not the failure of God's plan. It was the fulfillment of God's plan, and that is the deepest reason John gives for why the rejection of Christ was not a failure. You have questions, and now is the time for answers. 
And there's lots of questions that we could ask and answer about the text, but I'm only going to give you one. And the question is, why on earth would God harden and blind his own people? Why would he do this? Did he not want them to repent and believe in his son? Did, did he not want that? Did he not want them to believe? Did he want them to believe? And the answer I give this morning is the same one I gave last week. The answer is yes and no. Yes, he did want that. And at the very same time, no, he didn't. You see, in one level, in one level of God's complexity, he most certainly did desire their repentance. His offers of salvation to them were real and true and authentic and genuine. God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that they turn from their way and live. God desires that all repent and that none perish. Those verses are all still true. But in another sense, in another level of God's complexity, beyond our ability to comprehend, God did not desire their repentance or belief, but even their rejection. And you think, why? Why on earth would God do this? And I believe there are two reasons, at least two reasons the Bible gives for why God would do it this way. Number one, listen very carefully, the Bible makes clear that God didn't save Israel here so that he could save them in a more glorious way in the future. See, God's not done with the people of Israel. Not even close. Not by a long shot. The best is yet to come for Israel. Rather, the Bible makes clear that in the future, the greatest revival in history is still to come, and it will be when the nation of Israel finally embraces their Messiah, and when God saves them, it will be more glorious then than if he had saved them now. Who are we to tinker with the plan? Who are we to declare to God what he can and cannot do with his sovereign plan? The second reason, the second reason why God did not desire the repentance here, and we're walking on mystery, but God blinded and hardened Israel against Christ so that they would hate him and reject him and murder him and crucify him, and yet in the greatest plot twist in history, the very death that he died would bring salvation to the world. Do you see? The unbelief of Israel was the path God planned to save millions from the nations. The tragic account of Israel's unbelief is designed by God to bring gladness to the nations. Don't you see? Joy to the world is the point of Israel's unbelief. I understand that this feels like a bit of a sucker punch. It feels like it might possibly call into question everything about God that you have believed, but it doesn't. It totally doesn't. Because I think if the Apostle John were standing on the stage today and he could speak for himself and he could speak to you directly and he can speak about this, I think the Apostle John would say something perhaps a little bit like this. I think he would say, little flock, God is not necessarily asking you to understand this. Nor is he even necessarily asking you to like this at first. But he is asking you to trust him. He's asking you to trust him that his motives for doing something like this, blinding the very people that he sent Christ to say, that his motives for doing something like that are infinitely pure and above reproach. Can you trust that? That his reasons for doing something like this are infinitely wise and righteous and good. Can you believe that? I think he would say the Father is asking you to trust him and to think the best about him and to remember that everything you've ever believed about his holiness and his goodness and his righteousness are all still true. 
that his love and his compassion are not incompatible with his sovereignty, but that they are inseparable. The Father is asking you to trust him. And to remember that there are things about his character and his plan that are at times beyond human comprehension. He's asking you to trust him. And to remember that his ways are not your ways and his thoughts are not your thoughts and that there are just going to be mysteries in the Bible that for now must remain classified. The Father's not asking you to get this perfectly nor to explain this perfectly but to submit to what the text says even if it feels uncomfortable knowing knowing that in the end God will be more glorified and you will be more joyified than if God had not done it this way and that that is the bible's deepest explanation for why people rejected Jesus Christ that is a certainty which brings us quickly to the second certainty the second and final certainty that you must know to make sense out of God, his plan, and why Christ means everything. Number two, you must know the tragic root of unbelief. You must know the tragic root of unbelief. Because my guess is, if I open this thing up for Q&A, which I'm not going to do, but if I were to do that, that inevitably the question would come up about human responsibility, Right? about human choice and responsibility, about how does the will factor into this? How do people's responsibility and accountability and decisions factor into this? And those are excellent questions because maybe you were thinking, okay, if what John and Isaiah said is true, doesn't that take the ball of responsibility out of the hands of the people? If God blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, which is what the text says, I didn't say it, the text says that, then so that they couldn't believe, doesn't that violate their personal choice? And those are excellent questions. And God is not afraid of them. But the answer is, the answer is, contrary though it may be to human logic, there is no conflict at all between divine sovereignty and human responsibility. There is none at all. There is no conflict. It is never a question in the Bible at all, as in that's not a problem. It doesn't seem possible, that it, but it's true. God deliberately blinding Israel in no way minimized their personal accountability. It did not. Why? Because God is sovereign in such a way that does not decrease a shred of anyone's personal responsibility. And where I get that from is in the very same text in which we see divine sovereignty. Look at verses 41 through 43. These things Isaiah said. Why? Because he saw his glory and he spoke about him. Yet nevertheless, many of the rulers believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him in order that they should not be excommunicated from the synagogue. Get this, for they loved the glory of men rather than the glory of God. I find this so fascinating, don't you, that in the very same passage that John gives us divine sovereignty, he gives us human responsibility. Verses 37 through 40 gives us the divine explanation for why the people rejected Christ, and verses 41 through 43 gives us the human explanation, and in so doing exposes for us the tragic root of unbelief. And look what he says. This, this is incredible. And, and notice what he does in verse 41. First, he goes... These things Isaiah said because he saw his glory and spoke about him. I want you to pause here and I want you to think about what John just did because it was very clever and it was very sneaky. And if you blinked, you missed one of the most profound biblical evidences in the Bible for the deity of Jesus Christ. Look again at verse 41. Look, John quoted Isaiah, right? He quoted Isaiah, and yet from which chapter in Isaiah did John quote? Which chapter was it? It was chapter 6, which if you remember from the last two weeks is one of the most paralyzing visions of the atomic glory of God found in the pages of Scripture. Yahweh is seated on a towering throne. 
His robes fill the palace. Angelic beings who are on fire declare that he is holy, holy, holy. And as they do, the ground shakes. That is Isaiah 6. John just quoted that chapter. And yet look at the end of verse 41. These things Isaiah said because he saw his glory and spoke about him. Wait, whose glory did he see? About whom did he speak? And you think, well, God, of course, and that's true. That's true. Isaiah saw the glory of God, and yet we just assume here that who Isaiah saw was the Father. And yet that's not what the text just said, is it? John just said that who Isaiah saw here and wrote about was none other than Jesus Christ himself. I'm going to read verses 37 through 42 again. I'm going to skip a part in the middle because it doesn't, doesn't argue this. But I'm going to read verses 37 through 42, and I want you to be listening for the pronouns he, him, and his because John uses a simple pronoun to argue that Jesus Christ is God. Listen carefully. Although he, Christ, had done so many signs before them, they were not believing in him. In order that the word of Isaiah the prophet should be fulfilled. Verse 41. These things Isaiah said because he saw his glory and he spoke about him. Yet nevertheless, many of the rulers believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him. Do you see what John just did? The same one who did all the miracles and the one in whom they did not believe is the same one sitting on the throne in Isaiah's vision, which means John just argued the deity of Christ using a pronoun, which means in Isaiah chapter 6, it is Jesus Christ on the throne, which means he is sovereign and supreme. Which means Jesus Christ is Yahweh. Which means he is holy, holy, holy. You understand Christ is not merely the founder of a religion or some accomplished rabbi, but he is himself God who came to earth in human flesh. That just doesn't get old, does it? The incarnation is the most breathtaking reality in the universe. And you might think, well, okay, okay, did no one believe? Did no one embrace and yield to Christ? No, no, there were some. In fact, there were many, John says. There were lots of people. Look at verse 42. Yet nevertheless, many of the rulers believed in him. Stop there. Many believed. Many of the rulers believed. Not a few, not some. There were many. Poloi, the text says, many. Lots and lots of people believed, and not just people in general, but rulers in particular. The wealthy, intellectual, elite, and upper echelons of society, the most powerful people in the entire country. And John says, many of them believed. Many. And you might be thinking, oh, few, finally. Someone believed. Finally, some progress here. Finally, finally a response other than hostility. To which I reply, not so fast. Not so fast. You see, not all faith is created equal. I mean, it says they believed. You need to understand, John wants you to see little quote marks around that word believed. John wants you to know that it might be a little too early to break out the champagne and celebrate that just because someone has faith does not mean it is saving faith. That just because someone says they believe does not mean it is authentic belief. You see, John has alerted us throughout his gospel that there is such a thing as being an unbelieving believer or a believing unbeliever. Meaning that one believes in Christ in an intellectual way at a superficial level for all the wrong reasons. John has taught us that there is a way to concede and affirm Christ intellectually. And yet your heart remains profoundly unchanged. Case and point, Nicodemus, you are not born again. 
Spirit, how do you know that? How, how do you know that this is the case? Because the Bible tells me so. Look at the very next phrase. Yet nevertheless, many of the rulers believed in him, here it is, but because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him in order that they should not be excommunicated. This is, this is troubling, isn't it? This is very troubling. I mean, yeah, it says that they believed, but you see here that they would never ever admit in a million years that they ever believed. Why? Because dia tus pharisaius, because of the Pharisees. Because of them, they would never admit it. And who were the Pharisees, the highest legal representatives of the entire country? They signed the checks, they owned the polls, they controlled the media, they called the shots, and according to chapter 9, verse 22, they would excommunicate anyone who would dare to confess Christ publicly, which in that day was a fate worse than death. And therefore, the lips of these leaders were sealed like a tomb, and they kept a vow of silence to never admit their faith, and when they died, their faith died with them. Some of you, some of you might have a faith exactly like that. You might have a Jewish religious leader-like kind of faith. You, you agree intellectually with the claims of the gospel. You agree intellectually with the claims of Christianity, but you would never dare admit it because of the public shame and ridicule that it would bring. Now again, hear me when I say no one is saying you have to be the world's greatest evangelist or that you have to do open-air street preaching to prove that your faith is authentic, but you do need to know that biblically speaking, a silent faith is no faith at all. That private faith is an oxymoron and a contradiction in terms. According to John, listen very carefully, silent faith is an unbelieving faith. You see, these men feared excommunication because what they loved, even more than they loved God himself, was the glory that came from man. Look at verse 43. Because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him in order that they should not be excommunicated from the synagogue. Here it is. For they loved the glory of men rather than the glory of God. I love this because John just did biblical counseling before biblical counseling was cool. When he says for there, he is getting to the deepest root issue of their deepest fear. Because get this, this is not only what caused them to be silent, this is what caused them to go to hell forever. Their deepest love. What was, let me ask you this, what was their deepest fear? What was it? It was love. It was love. Their deepest love drove their deepest fear. What they loved the most determined what they feared the most. And what they feared the most was being excommunicated because what they loved the most was the glory that came from men. Do you see? In other words, they thought way more about, they cared way more about what people thought of them than what God thought about them. The approval, the acceptance, the applause, the admiration of men was what drove them, gripped them, controlled them, captivated them, motivated them, what they, say, what they did and did not say, what they did and did not do, what they did and did not think was all dependent upon the praise and opinions of other people and not what God stated in his own word. Get this, feel the tragedy. They could smell the feast of eternity, but because they loved the praise of men, they were simply unwilling to eat it. The praise of men was just a treat, too tasty to pass up. Or so they thought. Or so they thought. And it's interesting here that John uses the term glory. I'm almost done. 
I mean, it is interesting insight into the human soul. They wanted glory from men, which means in a bizarre inbred feedback loop of idolatry, people were their God and they wanted to be worshiped by the very gods that they themselves worshiped. And that is what drove their deepest fear. The question is, the question is, do you love the glory that comes from men more than the glory of God? Are you driven by the need for peer approval? Do you live your life on the stage of the world for the applause and approval and acceptance and accolades of men? The question is, what links have you been willing to go to? What compromises have you been willing to make so that you could be admired and accepted and applauded by human beings? And the most important question is, if you do love the glory that comes from men, do you know the cure? Do you know how to starve to death the inner glutton that hungers for the glory and praise of men? Because I'll have you know that to conquer this, you must fight fire with fire, or should I say glory with glory. The way to cure your appetite for the praise of men is to gorge yourself on the glory of Christ from the pages of Scripture because as you do that, the more you do that, the glory that comes from man will fade into oblivion. In other words, if you want to see the glory that comes from man as repugnant, you must see the glory of Christ as magnificent. The more glory you see of who Christ is, the more you are freed from the fears that entangle you. That is how you win. That is the cure. And you see this, all of this, this quotation from Isaiah chapter 6. What is this? This is John's deepest theological explanation for why the rejection of Christ was not the failure of God's plan, but the fulfillment of God's plan, and the answer is in the meticulous sovereignty of God. And that's it. Let's pray. The Lord standing on a cliff such as this is never easy. It demands everything of us. It, it, it pushes us to the limit. It's hard, oh Lord, it's hard because there's so many questions we have that aren't necessarily addressed by the text, so many objections that we might have, and yet I pray, I pray for this precious flock that instead of being defensive, instead of being argumentative, that we would yield in subjection. And Lord, you, you, we know that it is okay to ask questions, that it is okay to be confused. It is okay to wrestle. You want us to wrestle with the sacred text. And yet, Lord, I pray that out of this, out of this blowtorch, this refining torch of John chapter 12, that we would be a people who trust more deeply, who hold on to you more tightly, who who believe in you more implicitly and wholeheartedly, that we would be a people who cling to you knowing that you are a God who governs everything that comes to pass. Because in a world like this, oh Lord, we need that more than ever. We thank you for your word, for the precious, infinitely valuable gift that it is. And we look forward to how you will use it in our lives always and only for the glory of your son in whose name we pray.